Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK and glad to be back. With us, joining from London, Corey Shockey at S. And in Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks at Georgetown Law School or thereabouts, Julianne Smith, who is a senior fellow and director at the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security, probably over in the vicinity of the Center for New American Security, and Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. I don't know where, where are you, Evelyn? You're in Washington. Well, it's downtown, but I confess I'm a little north of the Atlantic Council, but still in Washington, D.C. Okay, so we've got a bunch of people inside the Beltway and Corey far, far away from the Beltway and undoubtedly happy to be there. <laughs> Loving it, yeah. Loving it. <laughs> lo- <laughs> um, so let's let's just sort of get into the news. And we'll, I, I got a feeling this is going to be kind of Euro potty because we've got a whole bunch of Euro stories. But, you know, breaking news today as we uh, um, uh, record this is we have a Secretary of State again. Um, Mike Pompeo was confirmed by the United States Senate. Um, and uh, I'd just like to get some reactions to that. Uh, although the fact is he's sort of been operating as Secretary of State for the past few weeks anyway, having flown off to North Korea and so forth. So, Corey, what do you think? Well, my sense is, sorry about that. My sense is that Pompeo is actually going to be a good Secretary of State. I think he, to a much greater degree than Rex Tillerson, actually can figure out how to communicate with the president and align his activity to the president's activity. I think, you know, the fact that he took the trip to North Korea suggests to me that he is thinking about the hardest issues that the White House has under consideration. I also have the sense that he um, is able to work cooperatively. Like, he did a good job at at CIA. Morale didn't plummet, even though the president had them under an enormous amount of pressure. I think he's going to be the most interesting card in the equation of how this administration chooses to act, because I think you definitely have in the Defense Department voices of restraint and stability and traditional American policy. You have very different voices ascendant in the White House. And so where Tillerson comes down, I think, well, to a large extent, um, make make policy. So, Julie, the tiara of optimism speaks, and we hear what we would expect, which is, yay, <laughs> yay, Mike, <laughs> yay, Mike Pompeo. 
How, do you, are you joining in this 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 chorus of? Uh, I don't think cheer? I'm saying yay. Uh, I'm relieved that uh, it's not Tillerson, and I'm relieved because I'm hearing now from a number of folks across this town and elsewhere that he has made dozens of calls to people, former career civil servants, former ambassadors, to ask for their advice. Folks on both sides of the aisle. Of course, we did hear the news some time ago that he had reached out to Hillary Clinton. But above and beyond that, the fact that he's making these calls to career civil servants that have recently retired and headed for the exits, I find to be a very good sign. Good questions about how do I rebuild the State Department to instill trust and confidence um, in the people who work for me, that, that they will have trust and confidence in me, he's asking. How can I um, kind of bring back the State Department from the dead? And so I, I find that very encouraging. Um, and I also am happy as a good Europeanist, this will not surprise you, that his first trip is going to be tomorrow to NATO uh, to sit down with the other foreign ministers of the other 28 countries around the table and start talking about how they're going to prepare for this July summit. So as a Europe geek, uh, that pleases me to hear that Europe's on the list for his first trip this week. I think he'll do well with the European allies. I've seen him in action with European counterparts. Um, he is good at listening, at engaging people. All that said, there are certainly areas and personal positions of his that I worry about. I think he was careful in his confirmation hearing about Iran and trying to reassure people that he's not going to come in with this agenda to immediately put it through the shredder. But I worry how he might tilt and ultimately align with Bolton on getting rid of the JCPOA instead of aligning with Mattis on keeping it around. I just don't know. Um, and that's just one issue uh, that has me a little worried. Of course, there are others. But, uh, okay, but yeah, that, so I have partial optimism. Two, two votes for partial optimism. Rosa? Oh, what do you expect? Well, <laughs> don't disappoint. Don't disappoint. I mean, Rosa. We're banking on you, Rosa. Uh, well, no problem. I'm I'm happy to oblige. Um, I really worry, as we we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, that the uh, remaining member of the of the much vaunted axis of adults, which we promised to say was a phrase coined by last episode's guest, Colin Call. Uh, the remaining member of the last of the poor axis of adults is, is poor old Jim Mattis, all by himself at the Pentagon uh, and increasingly surrounded by not people who even putatively are other adults, but, but by people who I think are inclined to cater to Trump's worst instincts, not restrain his worst instincts. Um, with Bolton in the White House, uh, Placing H.R. McMaster and uh, Pompeo, I, I see no reason to doubt that he will be a better institutional shepherd with regard to the State Department itself uh, than, than Rex Tillerson was. But I think on substantive foreign policy issues, uh, there is not much reason to be optimistic. Um, and I think he's, he's far more in the Bolton camp. Um, and I do worry that that really tilts the balance away from uh, senior officials who are tend to be 
in favor of a relatively restrained approach, little c conservative approach that that favors alliances, that favors the general principle of you enter into agreement, you don't you don't tear it up uh, unless there's a really 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 good reason um, that you try to work with it, um, et cetera. So 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 no, I'm I'm I think very bad things could happen. I mean, as ever, we leave a little bit of room for we could still get lucky. Um, but but this in terms of our uh, hypothetical uh, clock, I guess it's the who is it? The atomic scientists. Who are the atomic scientists? Whoever it is who has that bad clock, that, that scary clock. That, is really uh, that would be the great Dr. Rachel Bronson at the helm of okay, the atomic the clock. Scary clock. I, I, I feel that this does not move the scary clock's hands further away from midnight. If anything, it nudges them a teensy weensy little bit closer. Okay, well, I tend to agree with Rosa, which gives Evelyn the deciding vote. Go ahead, Evelyn. Okay, well, is this going to be up for a vote, whether we have an apocalypse or not? Is that how this works? That's how it works. This is a democracy, We know you're going to vote for the apocalypse, Rosa. No, because of its negative impact on the restaurant scene, I'm going to vote against the apocalypse, but nevertheless, it's it's not up to me. Yeah, no, and everyone is relieved. Evelyn... So I, I think I, I always try to be uncategorized, and so I'm sort of in the middle and sharing various um, sympathetic thoughts with some of my colleagues. So on the one hand, um, I think it's great that we have a competent person at the State Department, somebody who, as Julie said, has reached out to experts, people with deeper experience than he has, although he has at least some relevant experience. He's far better than Tillerson in that respect, and also, again, in the respect of reaching out to get expertise. Also, from what I've heard from people who served with him in the CIA, you know, he does listen to the experts. That's also important. Having said that, I do think he is clearly more of a hawk and he's talked a big game, which, you know, and the big game in the nonproliferation realm, at least, we don't really know what he thinks outside of that area because he hasn't been as vocal. But certainly when it comes to Iran, North Korea, you know, he's he's used language that indicate that he's I- interested in regime change in the case of, interestingly, in North Korea. Uh, also, of course, with regard to the Iran deal, he's been heavily critical the question is now how that will obviously manifest itself once he's in the in in a position where now he's the top diplomat <laughs> and how he'll interact with his colleagues and i think there you know we had a whole almost a whole show on the interaction the the potential interaction between him and bolton and i think that's still going to be a, an area where they may well find that they're kindred and then as someone else said, you know, Secretary Mattis will be sort of on the other side of the equation. But it remains to be seen. I think in 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 some, I would say that it's more more on the positive side. And I think that's because, of course, in this day and age and looking at what's happening in the administration, you know, it's all relative. Well, I have to say, I would be willing to support regime change in Iran, say, in exchange for regime change in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> I should work with that. Yeah, I put that. I just want that deal, you know, on the table. Um, okay. Well, so, <laughs> yes. We have real elections, unlike the Iranians. Well, well, do we or do yeah, we? Right. Good, I mean, yeah, that's well, a good when point. the Russians aren't intervening, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, except except I think that from the perspective of international experts on free and fair democratic elections. Uh, 
the fact that rather we've now had two in rapid succession where the uh, popular vote victor has not become president, things are not looking so good for American <laughs> democracy. So I, I, I definitely think we should we should consider this. And this would allow Trump Trump a triumphant exit if he could sort of swap for regime change elsewhere. Well, that's look, any any kind of exit. Anything that gets him to the exit is okay. Going to make with Kim Jong Un? Yeah. Well, we're going to come back you, to Kim yeah. Jong Un. You step we're, down, I'll step down, and we'll go in together on a new beauty pageant and hotel business. Excellent. Um, okay. Well, I think we're we're making real progress here. What I want to do, though, possibly, is shift away from it and have a discussion about something we don't talk about in great depth. Um, these days in the United States, and that's Europe and the transatlantic alliance. And I want to take it in three chunks. We have, you know, we have uh, uh, about a half an hour here left. And and, and, and I, w- I want to devote a little bit of time to certain news pertaining to the United Kingdom. And then I want to talk about the French uh, president's visit. And then I want to talk about the German chancellor's uh, upcoming visit. But the, the the news that I enjoyed today was that um, it, it turns out that the president of the United States is actually going to visit Corey in London <laughs> in in July. Um, and and it's it's going to be a working visit, they say. No state dinner. Uh, sort of in and out quickly. They may, you know, it may be at three in the morning. Um, uh, because they're afraid of things. lifted. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. In a disguise. Um, but you can tell why when you, um, might've seen a tweet that came out shortly after this news was announced from the great Sadiq Khan, who's the mayor of London. And, and, and the, the mayor writes, if he comes to London, President Trump will experience an open and diverse city that has always chosen unity over division and hope over fear. This is good trolling, but he keeps going. He will also no doubt see that Londoners hold their liberal values of freedom of speech very dear. Um, and it's you know to me this is he's kind of like throwing down, saying, "You want to come? There's going to be a giant demonstration." Um, and so <laughs> the question is. Corey, will you go to that demonstration um, and and lead, be on the never Trumper? Maybe there were, well, I just, the idea of a never Trumper float in the parade. (laughs) You know, in my hometown of Sonoma, California, in the 4th of July parade, there is uh, very often an enormous layer cake float that has a Lady Liberty wrapped in a flag coming out the top of it. And I feel like that's the look I'm going for on the president's trip to London. I like that. And you could dress as the the woman on the cover of your book. (laughs) Actually, I very often do dress as the woman on the cover. (laughs) Right? A battleship hat, the accoutrements of war hanging off my purse strings. Yeah, that's me. And this... this Listeners is yet another reason that you need to go buy Corey's book. So you can visualize this. Yeah, no, I want to (laughs) see. I want to see a paperback edition with Corey in that costume. That's 
<laughs> That's where we got it. I know somebody's working on that on Photoshop right now. Oh. See it on Twitter. Now I very much do not need that visual. <laughs> yes, but whoever's working on it, the rest of us do need that visual, and we're looking forward to it real soon. Um. All right. So let's get back to this. Trump. Trump going to the UK. Uh, Julie, good idea. Bad idea. Um, going to end in tears? Uh, it's so probably, before Julie weighs in, can yeah. I say one substantive oh, yes, yes. thing? Since, since, the question um, was for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, sure. Which is, I had a really interesting conversation with a, uh, with a former British national security advisor today, and he raised the very interesting point that Prime Minister Macron can survive a a visit that's personally engaging and policy unsuccessful with President Trump, but a British prime minister would never be able to do that. And that, you know, the French have a sense of grandeur about their head of state, whereas the British expectation of the comportment of the closer cooperation between policy and personal comportment. And I'd love to know Julie's thought on that. I, uh, I nailed it. I mean, that that's I, I love it. I, I can't believe uh, I didn't think about it in those terms. But um, that's that's a brilliant way to look at it, because I think there's a lot of truth to it. Um, I mean, in some ways, I actually thought there'd be more pressure on Macron to come home with a basket of deliverables. Um, but I think the embassy here and um folks back in Paris tried to manage expectations. For a while, it was looking like if he came back with anything short of a 100% guarantee that the United States would keep the JCPOA, that the, the trip would somehow not be a success. But I think he managed to get across his point show that he was not completely 100% in Trump's camp. I think it was important for him to do the address to Congress and have the GW town hall. Um, But I think the guy you or gal you were talking to is right in the sense that it's a lot about ceremony. And, you know, the the state visit carries a, a, a lot of significance and symbolism. And maybe the Brits aren't prepared to... Uh, just settle for ceremony and pomp and circumstance and all the rest, and they won't be so kind to May. And if she doesn't show that she has changed Trump's mind on something, at that point, we'll be past the May 12th decision point on the JCPOA, but it could be trade-related, could be tariffs. I mean, who knows what decision we're going to get on that front. I think she is in for trouble. And I think Trump isn't going to budge. He promises no one. I mean, he doesn't want to promise any world leader much. Um, And I think she could end that visit with some regrets and she could do some damage. It could become a political liability for her. Um, All right. Well, let's let's switch away from this. Rosa and Evelyn, if you want to join in on the British one, we can you feel free. But but I think we have sort of shifted the discussion a little bit to look back at the Macron visit. Um, And in the first stages of the Macron visit, there was a lot of discussion about how Macron and Trump were touching each other which was really, it was kind of weird. Literally. <laughs> yeah, made me made, made me a little uncomfortable. Skip, 
limping around hand in hand. Right. Um, and they would like Licking hold dandruff from the right. suit. Right. And talking about how they're perfect and, you know, stroking each other gently and so forth. And, ah, and David. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that image comes from CNN. It doesn't come from me. <laughs> um, picking, and, gently picking head lice off each other. Exactly. Like two, <laughs> like two grooming baboons. And then, you know, and everybody yeah, then so goes disrespectful, aren't we? Yeah, well, whatever. But then, you know, the French press goes, oh, he's fawning over him and this is too weird and so forth. But then Macron goes to the United States Congress and trolls Trump with the most magnificent troll speech of all time, taking a stand against nationalism, nativism, everything that Trump stands for. And then he has a meeting with the U.S. press in which he says, no, Trump's going to dump this deal anyway. And so as Macron leaves town, you know, to me, it looks like, you know, he, he did not succeed at his mission, but he did take some real shots at the president. And I just was like, you know, everybody's verdict on it. Let me let me go to you, Rosa, first. I I mean, I'm not willing to give him a lot of credit uh, for that speech after all the the fawning visuals. Um, I mean, the, 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 the symbolism does matter, obviously. Um, and in some ways, it matters more than words. And the visual imagery that comes out of this matters in some ways much more than the words that he spoke. Uh, you know, it's the old picture is worth a thousand words, particularly in our era of social media and so forth, you know, that people around the world will see and have seen these rather disturbing pictures of the Donald Trump and Macron sort of skipping around hand in hand and gazing lovingly at each other. Uh, the fact that he subsequently goes and is critical in a speech to the U.S. Congress, I think, unfortunately, you know, gets completely overshadowed by that. That the, 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 the main takeaway I think most people who aren't paying close attention have is that, you know, French president's sucking up and is willing to be you know, trail around after Trump adoringly. And that's that's what the takeaway is going to be. You know, the, the, the words don't really matter. Okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, Evelyn, do you think the words matter? Or is it just the two of them nuzzling together? No, I think the words really matter. And I actually think, uh, I, I have to give the French president a lot of credit. He's doing well by France. He's being very smart. He knows what he has to do to engage Donald Trump. He clearly has found found a way to get Trump to like him. Now, whether that's translated into policy or not, it remains to be seen. It, it's doubtful, but it, it may be useful, everything he's doing, not just the, the, the symbolism, but participating with us on the, the strikes in Syria. I think that's important. And he did that. And I'm sure they talked about that. Um when he went to Congress and he spoke those words, those words were really important. And that was the audience that needed to hear it, because, frankly speaking, the audience in the White House isn't interested. So Congress was the one, you know, Congress is the institution that needs to be reminded of their values and American values, transatlantic values, what's at stake here, uh, the need to fight for those values, for free trade, for the institutions of democracy domestically, internationally. And he also did something which I don't know whether the newspapers will carry it, but it's getting a lot of Twitter buzz. He had like a five or 10 minute hug with John Lewis, which is also very 
interesting and symbolic, as interesting and symbolic as all the touching of the president, because here he is touching uh, an icon of the civil rights movement, you know, someone who has been critical of President Trump and who is continuing to fight for American values. So I think that what Macron did was masterly, actually. I mean, he's having it both ways. We may not like it, but I, I think it, it works. Okay. Julie, you watch this very closely. What do you think? Well, I think I, I agree with Evelyn in the sense that Macron's trying to do the best he can. I mean, it's he's somebody in Europe has to have some close relationship with this guy. And let's face it, it's just not going to be Merkel in May. And uh, if Macron is our guy, uh, you know, we've got to just and he's going to have to seize on this opportunity. He's doing the best he can to manage it. Um, he's not he doesn't want to be the Tony Blair lapdog that you know, we saw it during the Iraq war with George W. Bush, he's trying to, again, set himself apart, but it's tough. I mean, there's now a story out that said that Trump thinks he actually changed Macron's mind on the Iran deal. So clearly at this point, um, you know, any hope that Macron was going to make headway on the Iran deal, I mean, that can just fly out the window. That said, I mean, we someone has to be on the other line. It's got to be someone in Europe other than Putin that Trump is talking to on a regular basis, even if you can't say, oh, I'm responsible for training, tr changing Trump's mind on policy X, Y, or Z. I think keeping the channel open and having somebody that he'll talk to is important. And maybe the Iran deal is not going to be the breakthrough, but maybe Macron in this unfolding love affair or bromance or whatever you want to call it is going to find a way to have an impact and influence this president in some sort of helpful way. At least it'll he'll have a friend at the NATO summit. I mean, I'm worried that Trump's going to sit down at the NATO summit, not really be interested in sitting through hours and hours of meeting, will get up and put, you know, Ivanka in the chair and walk away. Let's hope that somebody like Macron can convince him that it's worthwhile not only going but staying in these meetings and playing a constructive role above and beyond telling Europeans to do more on defense. So I don't know. Corey? I don't know, Julie. I think Julie might have just taken the tiara of optimism away. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, and Corey. It becomes her. It becomes her, my friends. <laughs> Top that. <laughs> What's the alternative? I mean, so Macron does what? He he gives Trump the finger and he decides to walk away and I won't engage with this guy. I mean, I don't know. I, th I think he's trying to do what he can, you know. Definitely. No, no, I think that's true. And uh, the reality is, he 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 did play kissy face with him, and he gave him the finger. Yeah. He gave him the finger in a kind of Gently. fantastic, you know, oratorical way yeah. uh, that that Trump himself won't understand. Um, so you know that's kind of it's kind of I, interesting. But but I do but, think go I on. do think that's the key, David. Right, the president's not going to watch. Trump's mm. speech on TV, mm. and so he has free reign to balance the ledger there. Um, I agree with Julie that, uh, and, and Evelyn also made the case that he's playing a bad hand well, and he does have a weak hand. He, and the buildup to the summit put Macron in an exposed position because the expectation was that the personal rapport between them would have policy consequences. That is, he would have influence as the result of that. I think that's always an unreasonable expectation with Donald Trump. 
he he really genuinely doesn't care and doesn't let you know you could sort of see him saying this is just business it's not uh if indeed he understood business um and so i think macron was in a difficult position because the expectations were so high that the personal relationship would translate into policy consequences. There was, as always with this president, the risk of a catastrophic failure, right? Like, your wife's prettier than my wife, so I'll brush dandruff off your shoulder, or whatever crazy logic is going on in the president's mind. Um, And I do think Macron, both in the scheduling of events the the planting of the tree from Bellawood was such a nice point. Going to Arlington Cemetery to visit the graves of American soldiers who had fought for France's liberation was a beautiful gesture. And I wish were reported anywhere near as um, enthusiastically as all the hand-holding kissy-face stuff. He, they, by the events they scheduled... What about the tree actually- planting? Did you like the pictures of the tree planting? I I so loved all of the Twitter commentary about this is a modern American Gothic. <laughs> that was good. And the Photoshop versions. I actually yes. feel like rather than worrying about fake video and fake audio, we ought to just lean all the way into it and just revel in a new world where you can't believe anything. Okay, well... In reading between the lines of all this, we get Macron doing everything in his power to persuade Trump, using a whole bunch of tools to try and do it, deftly, uh, some might say, uh, and not getting anywhere with Trump and coming away pretty sure that Trump's going to dump out of the Iran deal. And now coming to town is <clears throat> the other contender for leader of the free world, Angela Merkel, um, who doesn't have the kind of kissy face butter up, <laughs> you know, game that Macron has. And on top of that Thank is the God. Yeah, no, true, but but she's the one thing in the world that Trump really doesn't like, and that's a strong woman. And so exactly right. It is not inconsequential that the president of the United States cannot get along with the prime minister of Britain or the chancellor of Germany because the thing they have in common yeah, is that they're actual women? <laughs> they're actual women, yeah. as opposed to and Ru- women. RuPaul, who he gets along with. Great. Um, no, I, I, yes, that's right. <laughs> they, they're they are strong women, and 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 so Julie, what what can we expect from the meeting with with Merkel? If, if uh, this, this is one, what, there's no optimism here. I mean, it this this visit. It just has so many problems. I mean, first of all, it's coming in the wake of the schmooze fest between Macron and Trump, a guy that Trump admittedly likes. Uh, So it's just the timing couldn't be worse. But even if Macron hadn't come to town for the big first state visit and gotten the big dinner at Mount Vernon and lots of kisses and all the rest, I mean, Merkel would still be in trouble because she has had problems connecting with him from 
the first time she met him. And these two are like oil and water. I mean, they are direct opposites, both on terms of style and substance. And so it's very hard to see how this is going to go well. There's only two questions you get asked when you walk through the Oval Office as a European head of state, and that is, what does our trade relationship look like? And what does your defense spending look like? Merkel has pretty bad answers on both fronts and doesn't seem to be willing to move the needle in either area and in terms of a direction that would make Trump a little bit happier. Not that her goal in life should be to make Trump happier. But if she were to say, hey, I know you're worried about her defense spending. Let's make some big, bold announcement while I'm here in Washington that I'm going to do a little better on that front. At least she would be giving Trump some sort of win. He loves to say, oh, I convinced everybody you know, to spend more on defense. But she's not going to do that. She's going to come. She's going to throw a lot of facts at him. She's going to make the case for why um, the White House should extend some sort of permanent exemption for the tariffs, which I don't think she's likely to get. She's going to also make the case to stay in the JCPOA. That probably won't go anywhere. And for what I'm told, she's also going to want to talk about Russia, which is just a really bad place to start with this guy. So I I honestly, I, I kind of worry about this visit. Wow. I, I, there no. goes the tiara oh, sorry. of optimism. It's out the window. Yeah. There, I lost well, it. I you lost had it. it there for a moment. And <laughs> nice and, while it lasted. Yeah. I hope you hope you enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> Rosa, Rosa, what, you know, do you want to. So everybody's, everybody's still talking as though there is some possibility that in some alternate parallel universe that could say or do that would somehow have an impact on Donald Trump in a predictable and enduring way, right? And and ditto, you know, all of these. Forget it, people. This is not a rational actor. And he is not predictable. There is no, everybody keeps having this delusion that they can figure him out or manage him or, and everybody right, tried that to there's manage some him has failed. Yeah, there is no key you can turn. You you may get the illusion for five minutes here and there that you did it because he's happy. You know, he'll hear something on Fox News, it'll change his mind or whatever. He'll wake up feeling grumpy. So I, I think this is just, you know, we're, we are kidding ourselves. Uh, he's, Trump is going to do what Trump is going to do, and it, and it does not matter what Angela Merkel says or does. There is, there is, there is no universe in which she in, somehow manages to bring him something that makes him go, oh, well, thank you. That was really helpful. Now I'm going to reward you by, you know, in a consistent way, remembering that you did that and it's not going to happen. So, you know, putting together this and some other conversations we've had recently, there's an important lesson for world leaders out there, which is that there was a sort of a thought for the past year that if you buttered up Trump, that if you played him in a certain kind of a way, that you might be able to get him in a certain direction, you know, the, and 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 that didn't happen with the Japanese leader who led the way in this, and it hasn't happened with Macron. Uh, it doesn't happen with people who make a rational case. Uh, so Rose is right, you know, that he doesn't respond rationally. But Evelyn, I just can't help but notice there's one leader in the world who always seems to get his way with Trump. <laughs> Kim Jong Un? <laughs> Not yet. Um, but he's. I'm coming to him next. But, but, yes, but, I know, Vlad. What's his, what's his secret? Ding ding ding. What's what's his secret? Well, we don't know what the secret sauce is. But interestingly, if I could pile on to all tempting the tempting to speculate, it is really tempting. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, pile on with the pessimism. Um, the pipeline. Um, the, interestingly, Trump is also going to. So Macron, I mean, um, Merkel is going to have a few items on her agenda she, where she's going to push at Trump. You know, don't do this, right? Uh, don't don't increase tariffs on Germany. Don't uh, don't pull out of JCPOA. Well, well, he's going to turn to her, and he likely is going to say, "Don't do Nord Stream two, the pipeline, the gas pipeline, the second gas pipeline going from Russia to Germany." And oddly enough, the Baltic states, when they met with Trump, um, I'm told from an inside source, they were told not to mention Russia. And maybe they didn't. I don't know. But in any event, um, she will mention Russia. He will mention Russia. But but there will be some tension over this because, interestingly enough, Trump seemed to take the side of the Baltic states on the Nord Stream 2 issue. Now, I think that was probably because he saw LNG sales in it for the U.S. I'm speculating here. I don't know. But nevertheless, and that's another area where uh, they, will, they will have tension, which brings us back to Vladimir Putin. And, um, you know, who knows? I mean, the, the problem is, you know, I had a piece in foreignpolicy.com, the shadow that Ju Julie edits and, you know, saying this president has this plausible deniability. You know, he's denying that the Americans, that he's, that he's in favor of the American administration's punitive actions towards Russia to include sanctions, you know, by, by coming out with these statements of, you know, continuing to come out with these statements declaring that he'd like to cooperate with Russia, which allows then a certain segment of the U.S. population to remain blissfully, you know, unaware or un- uh, you know, on uh, lacking in vigilance against the Russian threat. So, uh, you know, Trump hasn't moved at all in terms of his perspective on Putin, sadly. Okay. So uh, we, we don't have a lot of time here, and I want to get to a couple of other things. Another piece of news that broke today that will really, really only, you know, resonate with the ultra nerdy subset of our nerds, which would be the, <laughs> the, the Euro nerds. The Euro nerds. Um, welcome. Welcome, and, everyone. It's both of you. It's, it's which is which is is Julie. Um, it's just me. Is, alone. Is that you're the no, only one. I'm with you, Julie. Okay. All right. There's two of us. Well, That's good. so one of the Trump nominees for ambassador who wasn't getting anywhere was a guy named Rick Grinnell. And this uh, uh, domination had been held up. And then, as of the day we're recording this today, the, the dam has broken, and he will be confirmed as the next ambassador to Germany. Now, I have only had interaction with Rick Grinnell on panels and on Twitter. And he was one of the least pleasant people I have ever dealt with. I can think of few people who would be so lousy as an ambassador as Rick Grinnell, who was a spokesperson for the United Nations for John Bolton. Um, so I just thought, do you have any views on this, Julie, Euro nerd? Um, this Euro nerd uh, is horrified uh, by this appointment. Um, it's really bad news. It's really, really bad news because of not just his views, but the, you noted the way in which he carries himself. I mean, I, I have seen him on panels. I've not been on a panel with him, maybe thankfully. And I, 
made the mistake once of trying to engage him a little bit on Twitter, which in retrospect was just a huge, huge big mistake. mistake. Never, uh, never, and never then engage an him. army of people came after me and yeah, never made that mistake again. But um, yeah, there's a little bit of an edge there that uh, does <laughs> not, uh, to say the least, um, lend itself to kind of the qualities that one would want to see in a future diplomat. So I worry that Berlin is really in for a rough ride, yeah. as if it's not bad enough. You know, yeah, no, have- no. He has all the subtlety of a beaker full of acid in the face. <laughs> um, I have another objection. To uh, okay. Add. You know, most of the high policy stuff of, of American foreign policy and its engagement with the world can be done and generally does get done in Washington. What ambassadors are crucial for are two things, both of which he will be a disaster at. The first is going out and reaching beyond the government into a society, right? Being an example of America, fostering our values, showing up at things that show that illustrate the support of the American government. Right. So think Hillary Clinton when she would meet with young entrepreneurs in Africa, right, to to change how people thought about Africa and and to give hope and inspiration to kids. He's, he'll be a disaster at that. The second thing an American ambassador needs to do overseas um, <laughs> is be engaged, listen and be a conduit to Washington of the diversity of voices, the trend of opinion, what's going on in that society. And somebody who listens as poorly as he listens is ill-suited for that task. Yeah. Well, Amen. Right. If anybody thought you know, Merkel was going to have a bad visit, it's like, and on top of that, here, take this guy back home with you. We don't, we, we've sort of come to the, the end of this. I'm going to pose one question for uh, Evelyn, to wrap it up, and one for Rosa. Um, Evelyn, we've talked a little bit about the JCPOA here and the growing certainty that Trump is going to pull out of it. I think there is one person in the world who can stop this. And, 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 well, now only... I get to say it. Now I get to say it. Okay. Kim Jong-un. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> that is the correct answer. Every time I've said his name, it's been not quite right. Okay. Why? Why is that? Bravo! The bravo! Why is that the correct answer? <laughs> well, because I mean, look, Trump. Uh, it was. I don't know if it was Macron or someone else speculating in the papers, but they were saying the best chance for Trump to wake up to the damage he could do with JCPOA is the fact that now he's sitting in a chair similar to the one, you know, well, the same one that Obama sat in when he was trying to make a deal on freezing a nuclear program with a country. And of course, Obama was doing it with Iran, but now Trump is trying to do it with North Korea. So, you know, perhaps it will it will be sobering and instructive to him. Unfortunately, Macron's statements to the contrary are a bit depressing, but there's always the chance. I, I did happen to run into Kevin McCarthy at, at a dinner that Tory Burch gave in, in New York, which makes me sound really fancy, but I was just there because I have a friend who's fancy. But um, but and he actually said something like, well, wait and see, you know, which sounded very exciting to someone like me who likes to occasionally put on a tiara of optimism. I, you know, my hope is that we can keep the current deal and then there could be some 
either real or I don't care, face saving kind of add on thing that the JCPOA parties agree to so that Trump can tell his, you know, his, his, his little constituency that he's done what he said he was going to do and he got a better deal because he's got to understand by now that no North Korean leader is going to take us seriously and actually eliminate their nuclear weapons. You know, maybe even, I mean, they'd probably freeze them, but you know, they would certainly won't go as far as to eliminate them knowing that, you know, they could be faced with a future administration that would renege on its word. Exactly. So he's got all the leverage. And if he simply said to Trump, if you get out of this deal, we will have no deal. Trump wants this deal more than anything in the world because he thinks it's going to change the subject. It's not. Mm-hmm. But but he thinks it's going to change the subject. Um, another thing. But he let's, thinks, let's be fair. If he does get a real deal, a real freeze, that will be an achievement. No, no, I I think that absolutely. Am I not allowed to be fair? No, no, be fair. I mean, I saw an article in the the Washington Times suggesting that Trump wants to be on Mount Rushmore, and I wouldn't quite go that far. But, no, but, I yes. Oh, I bet he wants it. I actually <laughs> bet he wants it. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, but I well, you know, or no, it was it wasn't that. It, it, I, although I did see that article also, it was that he should get the Nobel Prize. Yes. Um, oh, yes. That's too far. But anyway. Well, I don't know if it's too far because Obama got it before he'd actually been in office. Practically. Oh, well played. Um, well, sorry, I couldn't help that. But another way that the conversation is being changed, and I'm going to leave it to Rosa to tie it back to our conversation, is that all the news stories tonight as this podcast hits will not be about any of this. They will all be about Bill Cosby getting convicted of sexual assault on three counts and facing 10 years in prison. Rosa, what does this have anything to do with what we're discussing? Oh, gee, let's see. What <laughs> do Bill Cosby and Donald Trump have in common, huh? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> Look, if everybody else in the press is going to tie this back to Trump this way, <laughs> I want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would love to believe that what they have in common is is a future facing uh, legal and political accountability for for, for their actions, um, including their very bad in particular in, in Trump's case, obviously, uh, actions with regard to uh, uh, his treatment of women. Um, that would be nice. Uh, I'm not particularly confident that that will happen. Um, for reasons that we've discussed in past episodes, uh, it 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 is it is um, surely going to be another thing that makes, if not Trump himself, then those in his inner circle, uh, including his few remaining lawyers and maybe even Rudy Giuliani, a little bit nervous. Um, uh, I think the whole you know Me Too. This whole Me Too moment has surely made them a little bit nervous, and it has empowered people like our, our, our new feminist heroine, Stormy Daniels, uh, and her, her colleagues in, in <laughs> Trump porn actress of Fairland to, to come forward. You know, so, 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 so I think it will certainly give new energy to some of the many women who have made accusations of, of similarly abusive behavior against Trump um, and maybe give them more inspiration to think that it may take a long time, in Bill Cosby's case, obviously, and 
in many of these cases, it took decades for justice to catch up with him. Um, but, um, you know, may give people some hope that someday down the road, justice will catch up uh, with with Donald Trump as well. You never know. Well, we can always hope. And with that cheerful note, I would like to ask Corey if she would lend the tiara to Rosa. <laughs> oh, indeed. <laughs> Just and for a little a while. Sight. She will be in that circumstance. <laughs> yeah, she will. She will. And I love ending on an optimistic note here. First of all, thank you to Ultimate Euro Nerd Julie for joining us. Uh, proud of it. Here, here. Pr- <laughs> proud of it. And if you would like to do a spinoff for us called Euro Nerd Report or something, please. With one that listener. her own Corey. podcast yeah. called, called Brussels Sprouts. No, exactly. I know that. I know that. But Which I'm, is fantastic. Thank well, you, Corey. But I well not I, to mention excellent with a little Parmesan cheese, lemon juice, and bacon. <laughs> yeah, the bacon is the real trick there. By the way, <laughs> the bacon is like bacon cures everything. You know, you could have fingernails with bacon and be oh, that sounds pretty good. Um, Did you just say fingernails? <laughs> yes. Sorry, I just again was, not a visual I needed. Just I was the first. <laughs> was just the first thing. Maybe David, you could post your recipe to cue the music. All right, we'll cue the music. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Everybody, come back next week. There's quite possibly going to be a next week, and you know, be nice if you joined us. Thanks, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.